All right, I'd love to hear your, your hands and your voices all the way up here. Thank you to the band and to our team for doing a great job again tonight. And thank all of you for being here. So here's the deal. I'm going to speak for the next um, 20, 25 minutes. We're going to do one more song. And then probably 15 minutes after that, we're going to do, uh, well, fireworks. And uh, we'll have a, a few instructions to give folks right before we, uh, before we do that. But uh, it's going to be an amazing way to end an amazing uh, time here at the Life Christian Church during this summer where we've been trying to encourage one another during a challenging time in, um, well, in the history of the world and certainly in, in many of our lives. So uh, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a different environment and there's a lot going on out there. But uh, if you'll settle in and give me your attention just for a few minutes, I hope to say something that will be meaningful to all of you, to everybody join us online, wherever, whatever camera you're looking at. I understand there are uh, many hundreds of people cumulatively joining us online on Facebook. We're so glad that you're with us tonight as well. So um, let me begin by offering this word of encouragement. It's that you will get to your best possible future if you just keep moving toward it. You will get to your best possible future if you will just keep moving toward it. So there's this really small but really huge sentence in the historian Luke's account of his travels with the Apostle Paul in the first century AD. Here it is. It's Acts chapter 28 verse 14. It says, and so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. Now, if you haven't heard any of the teachings the last few weeks, you might understandably say, so what? What's the big deal about Luke, the historian, writing, and so we came to Rome? Well, this sentence is the capstone of a two-year adventure for Paul and his team this story began, as we've talked about at some length over the last few weeks, this story began um, with the Apostle Paul being arrested in Jerusalem in a, in a very tumultuous scene where it looked like his ministry career and even his life might soon be over. In the midst of this terrible ordeal, Paul's first night in jail in fact, Jesus stood near Paul. This is in Acts chapter 23. Jesus stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now for Paul, this was a picture of a preferred future. Jesus told him that he would not only survive this horrific setback, but also that God had plans for him to go to Rome and to share the good news about Jesus with the most influential people in the world in the most powerful city on the planet. However, as we've discussed, the journey from Paul's present 
from his difficult present to his God-dreamed future would be long and difficult. Paul's journey to Rome took two years and is detailed over five chapters in the New Testament history called the Book of Acts. He was nearly torn apart by a violent mob during this time, unjustly imprisoned, held without a proper trial, the victim of at least two assassination attempts, bribed unsuccessfully by a Roman governor, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, and more. But here's the point. He finally arrived in Rome, which was what Jesus had told him would happen two years previous. He finally got to this future that God had promised him. Acts chapter 28, verse 14. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, Luke wrote. And so we came to Rome. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. At the sight, so Paul got to Rome, he sees brothers and sisters in Christ, and Paul was encouraged. It is stunning how many times in the five chapters in Acts, between Acts 23 and Acts 28, during this long journey of Paul from Jerusalem and bad times to Rome and successful times, it's amazing how many times the word courage shows up in some form. And at the very end of this long, long, difficult journey, Paul was encouraged. Now, over the last five weeks, I've been attempting, I've been working really hard to try to encourage you. I've reminded you again and again that God has a wonderful plan for your future, but in order to, for you to get from here to there, you're going to have to have courage. Acts chapter 23, verse 11, so Jesus says to Paul, you're going to go to Rome, but you're going to have to take courage with you. Over the last five weeks, I've extrapolated five principles from Paul's journey to help us take courage. I'm calling these five steps to take courage with you. So far, I've introduced four of the steps. Step one, see where you're going. Step two, starve your enemies. Step three, keep courage even when things go wrong. Step four, learn to shake off the small stuff. I'm not going to go back into any, any of that today. In a few minutes, I'm going to share step five with you. But first, I want to hammer home this, and so we came to Rome thing for just a few more minutes. If you read that verse in a vacuum and don't know the succession of turbulent events that took place during the preceding couple of years, you probably think, again, so what? But here's what I think is particularly important about this. With most success stories we hear, we tend to be more attuned to the destination aspect than the journey part. I love, as many of you know, to read biographies about eminent leaders, and I've read many biographies of successful leaders throughout history. What amazes me is this commonality to their experiences. None of them that I recall started out with great success. They had to risk. They experienced setbacks. They suffered losses. They experienced failures. They suffered through temptations. There were long periods of time when absolutely nothing seemed to be going right. For some reason this week I was reminded, I guess because of the very um, simple way that he responds to this, 
I was reminded of the story of Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. Walton started his retail journey with a little dime store in a small town in Arkansas. And through the years, he experimented with different ideas, some that worked and others that didn't. He did this for years and years. And then finally, he got the formula right. And Walton wrote this in his autobiography. He wrote, Somehow over the years, folks have gotten the impression that Walmart was something I dreamed up out of the blue as a middle-aged man and that it was just this great idea turned into an overnight success. And then Walton says, like most other overnight successes, it was about 20 years in the making. Success, he wrote, is in fact a habit. That's the story of most great people that I've studied. Walmart didn't just get launched into the stratosphere of retail success one day. It was a 20-year journey of ups and downs, successes, failures, risk, times when he wanted to give up, but he got up and he tried again. The fact is that every success has a backstory. Many of us are, are still on our journey to where we know God has called us. We see a preferred future in, 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 in the future, but we're not there yet. But it's okay. Don't give up. You have had and you will have again those we came to Rome moments. Those moments when it all comes together, when it pays off. Those moments when you see some part of your God-given dreams come true. As you move towards your preferred future, thank you. As you move towards your preferred future, there will be times when your ideas work and times when your ideas fail. There will be times when you experience a good day and times when you experience not so good days. There will be times in your new business where the profit margins are really high and times when you wonder whether or not you're going to survive. You cannot lose hope. There will be times when things happen in the world that are beyond your control, like COVID-19. You can't lose hope. God hasn't changed his mind about you. I feel like saying that again and again and again. The world may seem a little crazy right now, but God hasn't changed his mind about you. And some of us need to hear the voice of Jesus saying, I'm going to get you to your Rome, to your future. But if you're going to get there, you're going to have to get up every day and you're going to have to take courage with you. See, people who do that just keep getting up every day, who keep growing, who keep learning, who keep praying, who keep believing in God's promises and keep acting in faith are ultimately going to keep winning. You just keep getting up every day and you keep doing the right thing. So let me risk telling kind of a complicated story in order to uh, make this next point, it's probably not worth the risk with everything going on. But if you'll follow me here for a moment, it's a very important illustration because it's about the New York Yankees. All the Mets fans, well, I don't want to get any emails this week, so I'll leave it there. I'll just simply say, and by the way, what happened to the Yankees today? How in the world did they lose with Paxson pitching that well? But that's a story for another day. Here's what I want to tell you now is that when the New York Yankees won the world championship 
1998, they marked their season campaign by breaking the record for the most wins of any team in history, 125 wins. How many Yankees fans are, I was going to say, in the house, but we're not in the house. We're not allowed to be in the house. How many Yankees fans are there in, in the parking lot? Well, in a season like that, every game, every inning, every at-bat, every play, you know, ends up building cumulatively to a giant success. You don't wake up with 125 wins. You get up and you do the right things day after day after day after day. Well, in the 89th game of that season, Andy Pettit was pitching against the Texas Rangers. In the seventh inning of the game, the Yankees were ahead 3-1. to one. Pettit walked the leadoff hitter, Juan Gonzalez, and the Texas Rangers started a rally. In the midst of this rally, in fact, after there were two outs, but as I remember, a couple guys uh, on base in scoring position, Will Clark uh, hit a blooper between Derek Jeter and Bernie Williams, the shortstop and the center fielder. The, they, they both ran towards each other trying to catch it, but the ball dropped. Bernie Williams picked it up. Pettit's heart sank because he knew that, uh, uh, that, that uh, the score was about to be tied by the runners who were starting to circle the bases. But even as his heart sank, he looked at second base and Tino Martinez, the Yankees' first baseman, was standing at second base. Well, why was Tino Martinez, the Yankees' first baseman, standing at second base? Because he had been trained that every time a blooper got hit to the outfield and dropped, that you run from first base, even though you're the first baseman, and you go to second base, and you wait to see, perhaps, if you can make a play on the runner rounding first and going to second base. The fact is that Tino Martinez said in a New York Times article that I saved that he had run that route hundreds of times and had never one time made an out. But on this night, in this historic season, in that 89th game, Tino Martinez stood at second base, received a throw from Bernie Williams, got the batter out, uh, and uh, the Yankees ended up getting out of the inning, winning the game, yet another step in a historic season. Again, I'm going to read from the New York Times article. He had run this route hundreds of times in his career just in case he was needed, and last night was the first time he could remember making an out as a result. See, here's the point. I want to make a very simple point about that. You have to keep going to second base. You have to keep doing the fundamentally right thing over and over and over and over again, even when you don't see immediate success, even when it looks like the world's gone crazy around you, even when it looks like you're never going to get where God's calling you. You just get up the next day and you keep believing and you keep praying and you keep treating people properly and you keep loving your enemies and you keep moving forward and you keep again praying and you just keep believing and you do it over and over and over and over and before long you find yourself exactly where you knew God had called you to go but some of us have lost hope in the middle of the struggle and I want to encourage you get up tomorrow and do the fundamentally right thing and you're going to get where God promised you would go now, having said that, let me close this series like this. 
I know all the kids came tonight infinitely more excited about hearing me preach than the fireworks. I know they were in the car on the way here saying, Mommy, Mommy, I can't wait to hear Pastor Terry preach. But I'm going to disappoint all of them because I'm going to be finished here in just a few minutes. Obviously, I jest. Not about being done in a few minutes, but... So here's the fifth step in this take courage to the future with you. It's pretty simple. Take courage, step five, go heal somebody. Take courage, step five, go heal somebody. Here's what I want to suggest. As we move toward our God dream future then, getting up every day and moving forward, we must never make it about just us or even primarily about us. I love how this principle is demonstrated in the story of Paul's journey to Rome. We've been working our way through this chapter by chapter over the last few weeks. As we discussed last week, Paul and his companions were shipwrecked, uh, though they, all 276 of them, made it to shore, either swimming or grabbing something from the ship that had fallen apart and floating. And then we're told in Acts chapter 28, verse 10, that once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when they were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So here's what happened. They shipwrecked. They're on Malta. Um, Paul is hosted by, by an official on, on the island of Malta. Malta. This official's father was sick. Paul goes in, ministers to him, prays for him. The guy is cured. And then everybody who was sick on the entire island came to where Paul was, and Paul just kept praying for people. And every one of those people he prayed for, and it was everybody who was sick, was cured. Now remember, Paul had been on a harrowing journey. He still was on a harrowing journey. He's just been shipwrecked. He's just been snake-bitten, if you'll remember. But when faced with the need of another human being, Paul forgets about himself and his own needs, and he focuses on the need of another, and then another, and then another, and then another. And so on. Everybody, again, on the entire island of Malta who was sick ended up coming to Paul, called Paul to be prayed for, and all of them were cured. Now, you might think it would be easy work for Paul to do all that ministry, but you might remember that time when Jesus healed a, a, a particular woman, and he said that when he healed her, that energy went out of him. He said virtue went out of him. When you do that kind of work, whether you're literally praying for someone sick or whether you're 
you're just serving someone in need. There's an energy that it takes to be able to continue to selflessly serve others. So it wasn't an easy thing for Paul to not just pray for this one sick guy, but the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. Paul was on the way to his God-destined future, but he stopped on the way to serve others in meaningful ways. Look, on your way to wherever you're going, despite the crash and burn episodes, despite what your enemies are doing, despite the storms and snakes, you always have to make sure you're healing someone. I'm told that the one essential key to recovery is to never be self-absorbed. You can't revolve your life around yourself and your future only. If you are revolving your life around yourself and your future, even primarily, you might miss it. Because if you're on your way to your God-preferred future, it will never just be about you. You need to make sure that you're healing somebody. That on your way to your destiny, that the trip is never just about you. I like something that... I like something that two Christian psychologists, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend wrote. They said in their book, It's Not My Fault, while it's not altogether true that people can be divided into two types, clearly labeled winners and losers, they can be divided into two types in another way. And which of those types you are will absolutely determine whether or not you find more of what you want in life. What are the two types? These Christian psychologists wrote, those who take responsibility for their lives and those who don't. It's a pretty powerful thing to say. I, I think I agree, but I, I want to take this to another level. I'd say that if we're going to generalize, that there are actually three types of people in this regard. One, those who will not accept responsibility for their lives. These are folks who, who in their minds or maybe even in reality have been victimized by bad things that have happened to them and they will not take action to rise above and move forward. Sometimes they have reason to feel like victims, but we all know you can't stay a victim and be a success in life. At some point you have to take responsibility for yourself and you have to rise above whatever negative thing has happened to you. Secondly, there are those who do accept responsibility for their own lives and act accordingly. But third, I add this. There are those who accept responsibility not just for themselves, but also for the world around them and the people in it as much as is possible. See, this is called extreme ownership. Extreme ownership happens when we accept responsibility for ourselves and as much as possible for the world around us and the people in it. Jesus is the extreme example of someone who practiced extreme ownership because he came and died for sins that he didn't even commit. See, on our way to our futures, we must never just think about ourselves. We must be determined to look around in the world around us and figure out what positive impact we can make. Who is it that we can serve? How is it that we can exercise courage, not just to get to our dreams, but to help other people's dreams come true as well? We've got to go heal somebody.
Now, it takes courage to do that, especially in a time like this. Guys, I know that our inclination right now is to curl up in a fetal position in a corner of our own home and maybe not come out until the year 2045. And there's a certain extent, of course, in which we need to be careful and practice. Uh, don't, don't, uh, uh, I, I don't want to diminish the importance of us staying safe. But let me just tell you, at some point, at some point, we all have to get back we have to get back to the courage it takes to go out into the world in whatever way God has called us to do it and to serve others in meaningful ways. And that's why over the past five weeks, we've given courage awards to a number of people and organizations who have dared to step out and serve others in sacrificial ways during COVID-19. And this is why we celebrate essential workers tonight. Now, all over these parking lots, yeah, that's good. All over these parking lots, if our plans have worked properly, there are people with red stickers on their chests or someplace on their clothing. And those red stickers indicate that those people are essential workers. I hope we've done a, a good job identifying essential workers, but here's what, what I want to say to you tonight on behalf of the people of the Life Christian Church, both to essential workers within our congregation and essential workers outside of our congregation, but we, can, we thank you for being here and consider you our friends and are honored for your presence. Thank you for your selfless courage. Thank you for not just thinking about yourself, but for thinking about others. Doctors and other health care workers, law enforcement, fire personnel, food service workers, so many more. A number of members of our staff team and so many volunteers who've gone out and distributed what's going to end up being about $400,000 of food to needy people around this area. Listen, I'd like, if you're an essential worker, I know you may feel embarrassed to do this, but do me a favor, please, if you would. If you're an essential worker, just stand up or step out or somebody around, look for that red, uh, that red badge on somebody. Would you find somebody around you who's an essential worker right now? And I want us to give about at least a 60-second ovation to just say thank you. Thank you for not just thinking about yourself, but you went and you healed somebody in your own way.